Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, the producer of Talking Politics. This extra episode is another recent talk by David. It's on the subject of how to fix British democracy, and he gave it to the annual general meeting of the Electoral Reform Society a few weeks ago. Like all big meetings at the moment, it had to be a virtual one. The question he considered was what can we change about our democracy, and more to the point, how? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics, in partnership with the London Review of Books. Like many people, I think I assume that the the how-to question, um, my instinct is that it must be a what question. That is we're being asked what the fix is, what electoral reform, what constitutional reform, what institutional change, what adjustment to the rules of the game would make it work better, would rectify. I think we all recognize the the many, the manifold unfairnesses, injustices, inefficiencies in British democracy, particularly at the moment as as it grinds its way through a whole series of crises. And yet, Actually, I think that the how question is the real one, not the what question, for the simple reason that if we knew the answer, if we could agree among ourselves, and maybe we could, what to do, if we came up with the ideal solution, the reform that we thought would obviously rectify the injustices and inefficiencies, we still wouldn't answer the really difficult question, which is how would it be adopted? How would we get a system that is not working to reform itself? And that seems to me to be the absolutely central puzzle, not just of British democracy, but of democracy, which is how do democratic systems reform themselves? Because they can't be reformed from the outside. To reform them from the outside would at some level be undemocratic. And I think history teaches us that institutional reform, deep structural institutional reform, is the hardest thing of all for democracies to do. And democracies are littered with the evidence of that. The Electoral College in the United States stands unreformed and I suspect is going to remain unreformed despite the fact that its injustices are manifest. It's possible, I suppose, just about possible, that Joe Biden will finally decide to take it on. But it seems to me incredibly unlikely because he has better things to do. Uh, the House of Lords seems to me to be evidence of the fact that institutional structural reform is incredibly difficult, particularly for long-standing stable democracies. And part of the problem is not just time. I think part of the problem is the other side of the democratic equation. We're used at the moment to worrying about the question of loser's consent. That is the fundamental democratic test, which is do the people who lose democratic contests have a reason to stay in the game? And that is being put under pressure. It's put under pressure by 
events like the Brexit referendum. It was put under pressure, I think, in the United States too by Trump's presidency. But there is also the issue of winners concerned when it comes to structural institutional reform. And again, forgive me if this sounds obvious, but there is a basic challenge in democratic systems that the people who have to reform the system are the people who have just won under the terms of the system. And for that very reason, they are less well incentivized than the losers, but they have more power. And it's not an insuperable problem by any means, because if it was, winner's consent would mean that nothing ever changed. And things do change. And democratic politics does reform itself. But it's very rare to get the setup right, to get the result of an election which creates the right set of incentives. And I think recent British history is evidence of that. British democracy is, among many other things, I think one word for it, fundamentally unreformed over the last generation or more. I mean, there have been changes, of course there have, devolution and many others, but relatively speaking, in an extraordinarily fast-changing world, our democratic systems look to me as though they contain too many relics of the past. And yet probably the two most propitious moments for structural reform in the past generation of British politics were undone on the one hand in 1997, when I think Tony Blair was potentially quite serious about structural and indeed electoral reform. But as he says in his memoirs, the problem is he won by too much. His majority was too big. You might think that would give him the license to do whatever he liked. But as he said, he couldn't sell to a Labour Party that had just won a 179 seat majority in the House of Commons a change to the system. They would have thought he was mad. He needed to win by far fewer. And then he could have done a deal with the Liberal Democrats. Or 2010, the other propitious moment, I think, for structural reform to British politics, where the result was too close. Um, the, the election where nobody effectively won and where there had to be a coalition, but then coalition politics produced the kind of horse trading and negotiation where the reforms that came out of it were too fragile to parliamentary and partisan arithmetic and game playing. So yes, we got a Navy referendum, but I'm one of those people who believe that George Osborne had set that whole thing up because he knew how it was going to play out. And the one reform we did get, the substantive reform, which shows the huge advantage that British democracy has over American democracy when it comes to structural reform, which is we don't have a codified constitution, so parliament can do whatever the hell it likes, which was the fixed term parliament act, the one really big change, which was itself clearly a consequence of narrow contingent partisan argument. And what the British parliament can do, the British parliament can undo. And the one big reform, I, I personally think it wasn't a particularly successful one, but the one big reform is about to be undone. So it's hard, I think, no matter what we think should be done to work out how it would be done. And then I think there's a bigger problem with the terms of the question. I'm not in, just going to spend 25 minutes telling you that I've been set the wrong question. I'm going to try and offer some answers as well. But the other big problem with the terms of the question, I think, is the idea that democracy is something that can be fixed. Because under the conditions where it needs fixing, that is like contemporary British democracy, where it is divided and fractious and often stuck, literally stuck, as we've seen in recent years, in an institutional setup that seems unable to deal with the problems that it faces. Any fix, any proposed fix, looks like a fix in the pejorative sense. That is, it looks like it's engineered to produce a particular kind of outcome, that we try and fix democracy by, as it would seem to the people who don't like it, engineering a particular kind of result. And I think we had a really stark example of that during the 
2017-19 parliament where British politics did get stuck, British democracy got stuck. That parliament which was created by an election that was called by Theresa May to use the first past the post system to create a kind of mandate for decisive action and produce the exact opposite, the, the ultimate nightmare parliament, at least for the government, where nothing could be done because there was a, a coalition of people who would veto anything. And during the, the sort of worst of the impasse where serious suggestions were made by parliamentarians for something to break the deadlock, a second referendum, for instance, or the, the group of parliamentarians who canvassed for a citizens' assembly, the idea that this might be the moment to think seriously and substantively about some kind of constitutional convention that would at least address the structural issues. The problem was a parliament that could have agreed on the terms of a second referendum or a citizens' assembly wouldn't have needed one. The reason I was always sceptical there would ever be a second referendum was that I didn't believe that a parliament that could agree on the terms, that is, the question, the franchise, the timing, would have needed a second referendum because that parliament would also have been able to agree on Brexit. And a parliament that could not agree on Brexit also could not agree on the terms of a second referendum or of a citizens assembly or indeed of anything. And we discovered that in the end, the only thing that broke the impasse was unfortunately an old fashioned first past the post general election that produced a skewed but decisive majority. But in case this sounds like a kind of council of despair, I'm not saying so therefore you can't fix British democracy, but I think you have to think about the question differently. And I felt this for a while, but there is a tendency when we look at the struggles of, of established democratic politics around the world to think that there must be a solution. And I don't think that this kind of democratic impasse can be solved in that sense. The other way to think about it is what we need is not a fix, but experiments. We should try new things. We should be willing to suggest and maybe even push for or embrace changes to the way we do democracy, not because we think it will fix democracy, but because we don't know what it would do. Because actually reform, when it's genuinely democratic, will be open-ended. So it's not a fix in the sense that it's designed to engineer a solution, a resolution, particularly of a short-term problem, and even Brexit, relatively speaking, certainly in the last parliament, was a short-term problem, but something which is open-ended and therefore, in the spirit of democratic politics, because in a way, the point of democratic politics is that it's meant to be surprising. Indeed, that's one definition of it. In a way, you could say fixing politics is much easier for authoritarian regimes, particularly if it's an institutional or constitutional fix, because they just do it. It ought to be really hard for democratic systems precisely because you can't engineer an outcome. And I think that there are lots of ways to think about reform as experiment rather than fix. So, for instance, I'm one of those people who is quite keen on the idea that British democracy should make much more use of deliberative forms of democracy. That is citizens' juries or citizens' assemblies, different ways of both approaching questions, framing questions, discussing questions, and possibly even deciding on questions. The challenge always with selling citizens' assemblies is that there's such an emphasis on getting it right. It would be such a disaster if you sort of set it up and it didn't work. It was it ended up more fractious. People didn't agree. It broke down. So you have to really engineer it. And in the literature on deliberative democracy, there's a huge emphasis on a kind of 
whole series of technical setups to make it right. And you need all these experts brought in. You need kind of professional deliberators to come and set it up right, make sure it's properly representative, get the right balance of people, and then moderate the conversations, use experts in the right. The whole thing feels over-engineered. And because it's over-engineered, it's actually deeply unpersuasive as a fix. The alternative would just be to do some and see what happens in the spirit that it might not work. And if it doesn't work, it's not a disaster. There is some odd balance of risk perspective around democratic politics, which I've struggled with for a while. And indeed, my book, How Democracy Ends, is partly about this, which is, you know, the current fear that democracy is on the edge of some precipice. And if we tinker with it, it's going to collapse that, you know, we're over the past few years, we've been at risk of falling back into the 1930s, into fascism, into authoritarianism. I don't believe that. I've never believed that. I think that we're such different societies. We have such different outlooks. We have such different experiences that the risks have been overplayed. But because the risks have been overplayed, the fear of experimentation is high, that somehow tinkering feels like it might undo the whole thing. I don't think it will. I don't think it would. The most substantive democratic reforms historically, to me, have been enfranchisements. So the evolution of democracy, particularly in the longstanding democratic nations like Britain and the United States, has been at its periods of impasse, often resolved by enfranchising new parts of the electorate, religious minorities, ethnic minorities, um, the poor, the, the unpropertied women, the great enfranchisements. I don't think the great enfranchisements were fixes. In some sense, they were experiments. I mean, they weren't experiments in the sense that I think once you've enfranchised people, it's pretty hard to unenfranchise them. But on the other hand, if you look at the arguments that surrounded, say, the enfranchisement of women, I mean, it, with hindsight, a lot of them look enormously overblown. But there was a sense that anything could happen. Actually, it was overblown because enfranchisements on the whole don't change that much. They just substantively make democracy, broadly speaking, more just. But they're not a fix. And I want to offer a, a kind of analogy in, in the contemporary setting because I've thought about this a lot. And you know, there's a lot of historical evidence that when democratic politics gets into a rut, the way to move it forward is not some kind of technical structural fix, but just to give more people the vote. Find people who haven't got the vote and give it to them. It doesn't matter, in a sense, what the system is. It breathes new life into it. And you know, the, the challenge for us, relatively speaking, is that we've enfranchised most people. So it's harder to find the people to enfranchise. But I've been struck for a while now that there is a group of people who are unenfranchised for whom there is an argument for enfranchisement, and that's children. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The enfranchisement of children seems to many people, and I've tried this out on different audiences, to be um, a laughable idea. I mean, it, it's either greeted, in my experience, with derision or, I mean, and, and I, let's say lowering the voting age to six. It's, or, or if you're in school, you get a vote. I can see people, I'm looking at people um, smiling as I speak, 
so six-year-olds, not, you know, people think I'm saying only six-year-olds should vote. I'm not. I'm saying from six up to 106 and beyond. You know, the six-year-olds would be a very, very small. But say the vote came with full-time education, so from whatever age, and our children probably go to school too early in this country, so let's call it six. It's thought to be a shocking, not just radical, but sort of a form of vandalism. Whereas, you know, there's a lot of momentum around across the board, lowering the voting age to 16. I mean, that seems like a serious, you know, a relative small number of people are enfranchised, but a relative enfranchisement. And I think there's a lot to be said for lowering the voting age to 16, but lowering the voting age to 16 is often presented as a kind of fix. You know, there's something that needs fixing and it often comes across as a kind of fix. It is often seen as a form of gerrymandering, partly because there is a lot of evidence that age is one of the key determinants of how people vote. And 16 and 17 year olds, we have a pretty good idea. So for instance, one of the reasons I think there was never going to be a second Brexit referendum is that there would never have been agreement as to whether 16 and 17 year olds should vote because we know enough about the likely way they would vote for the people who wanted Brexit to happen, to resist it, and the people who wanted Brexit to be stopped, to embrace it. For me, one of the arguments for, though I'm aware it's a, it seems like an outlandish idea, for enfranchising children rather than just 16 and 17 year olds is I don't think we have any idea how six year olds would vote. I think it would be very interesting to find out. When I say this, people say, oh, we know what would happen. They would do what their parents say, would they? Do six-year-olds do what their parents say? They might do what their grandparents say. They might do what their teachers say. They might decide not to vote. Who knows? Or they might seriously read the manifestos and make a judgment on the basis of what they think would be the best set of policies for the country, you know, unlike adults. Who knows? It would be an experiment. Now, when I say that, people think it would be insane to experiment with democracy with something as radical and drastic. Would it? Would that be more insane than plowing on with a system that seems stuck in the mud? The fact that we don't know what would happen doesn't mean that we can, can't be reasonably confident that nothing terrible would happen. I don't think anything terrible would happen if children would vote any more than all of the hysterical, overblown arguments that said when women would vote or poor people were allowed to vote or Catholics were allowed to vote, that the country would fall apart. The point about representative democracy is it has all of these safeguards built in. That's how it's meant to work. You know, voting doesn't change that much, but it does at least, if you embrace experimental radical reform, at least open politics up to new voices, ideas, ways of doing things. I happen to think that if children were allowed to vote, we would see a change in our politics and probably on the whole for the better. It's not gonna happen. I'm fully aware that children are not probably gonna be given the vote in my lifetime. I make this argument partly just to say, I don't understand why, rather than a technical fix, an open-ended experiment, that is you know, something that we don't know what it would do is thought to be so shocking. And this is partly because after all, we live in a world where almost everything apart from democratic politics is insanely experimental in the sense that the world of Amazon and Facebook, every time we log on, we are taking part in a series unawares to ourselves, often a series of quote unquote, pseudo democratic experiments about preferences and outcomes and you know, cognitive biases and all the rest of it. And I am aware that there is a case for representative democracies, the kind of you know, historically grounded democracy that we have in this country, that it's meant to be a bulwark against that. You know, we do, you wouldn't want 
our democracy to operate like Facebook does, where you know, 20 times a day you tinker with the system unbeknownst to the people who are participants in the system to try and see if you can make it work better. But it is also true that representative democracy has to compete with Facebook. Representative democracy has to compete. It has to hold our loyalty. It has to command legitimacy in a world where, though a lot of that experimentation is highly manipulative, it is also often empowering. These platforms on which you know, the system is changing in real time as you interact with it are for many people, for all of the things that can be said against the digital social media revolution, capable of creating new forms of community, new forms of identity, new forms of voice, new outlets for people's anger, their passion, their complaints, their desire to be heard, new forms of voice. And a democratic political system that is so worried about change that it thinks the only changes it can embrace are the ones that we know are going to work, and yet a system that knew what would work wouldn't need changing, so you're stuck, like American democracy is stuck, like British democracy is stuck. And let's hold on to that, because if we do anything more radical than that, we will collapse back into 1930s authoritarianism. And on the other hand, everything else about our lives, about social rather than political life, is subject to such dramatic, constant experimentation. We shouldn't be so scared of it. I really think that. And I think that rather than trying to fix it, to be willing to try new things is the democratic spirit. Now, I still haven't answered the question, which is how? Then how, how do you experiment? So the, the one I've suggested isn't gonna happen. We're not gonna, I mean, I'd love it if even somewhere someone would give six-year-olds the vote just to see, and not in a mock primary school election, because that doesn't count, a real vote where real politicians can lose their jobs because the six-year-olds have turned against them. Um, and I think there are substantive you know, reasons to make the case, not least because I'm absolutely sure that one of the reasons that British democracy has acquired the character it's had is that we've lived through dramatic social changes, including deep demographic changes. And this system, which 100 years ago was overwhelmingly populated by younger voters, is now predominantly in an elderly or aging society. You know, it, it's structurally biased in favour of older voters simply because there are more of them. I mean, so I think there is a case for it, but I don't, I'm not making the case as a fix. I'm making it as an experiment. But how then do you run experiments in democratic systems, given this inbuilt resistance? So the last thing I'll say is that the historic evidence is that, the, and you know, you'll know the cliche, never let a crisis go to waste. The historic evidence is that democracies are most likely to change, that is to structurally reform <clears throat> under conditions of not just impasse and partisanship but actual crisis and stress that is where there is a risk of you know, really significant harm for some people but also of danger and you know, one of those uh, ways in which democracies changes during war and, the, and many of the big structural institutional changes to british democracy can only be understood because they are products of war well i'm not advocating a war so that we get proportional representation but there are, I think, two big crises coming for British democracy. And you might say they're structural crises. So one is the crisis of the union. There is no question to my mind over the next five to 10 years, we are going to see, I can't tell you how it's gonna play out, but we are going to see deep 
tensions and strains around the demand for Scottish independence, the possibility of an independence referendum, maybe a successful independence referendum, but then the knock-on effects that that have for questions of governance for England. And the pandemic has, you know, we're through one of, well, not through, we're in the middle of one of these crises, which hasn't quite had this effect, but the pandemic has certainly highlighted many of the inefficiencies and inconsistencies in British democracy, not least the idea that the Westminster government is somehow also the English government, even though it's not an English government. But the strains to the, the, the system of devolution under pressure for a Scottish independence referendum, the pressure that then puts on a whole series of knock-on constitutional arrangements. So you could say this provides the opportunity for a fix. You know, This is our chance to get it right. If Scotland becomes independent, maybe that's the point at which England, England and Wales, Wales separately in relation to Northern Ireland, we, we, we get this right, we change how Parliament works, we change the electoral system, whatever. Under those conditions, the idea that there would be a fix that people would agree on seems to me absurd. I mean, it's even harder then to agree on anything. But it's a great time to experiment. I mean, under those conditions, we could, you know, that there's a lot of opportunity then for think about not what constitutional convention would produce the constitution that would fix British democracy, but what constitutional convention would just be different enough that we don't know what it would do? What form of deliberation, what kind of citizens assembly would be not predictable, but unpredictable? And the other crisis, it seems to me, of British democracy is climate change which over the next 10, 20, 30 years is, I think, going to put enormous strain on how we do politics. It's an incredibly difficult problem for democratic systems to resolve. And it is itself going to be subject to, I think, all sorts of partisan divisions. We have a conservative government that's starting to talk about accelerating carbon neutrality, and there will be deep inbuilt resistance to that. And some of that resistance, I think, is going to produce further crises of British democracy, not least because this may be happening under conditions of climate change, which are themselves extremely, I think, politically and socially demanding. It's going to have economic, social, political consequences. And at some point, I suspect climate change is going to demand forms of structural democratic change. Now, enfranchising children might be one, but it's probably not going to happen. But thinking about the ways in which British democracy could also experiment with alternative forms of decision making, citizens assemblies in which citizens do science. Citizen science seems to me an interesting idea. The pandemic has been an example of just how ossified democracy is. So what's been the great democratic experiment of this year, apart from firing Dominic Cummings, because the Prime Minister's girlfriend doesn't like him. The other great experiment has been having press conferences where the Prime Minister and scientists talk to us as though we were children. It seems to me there has to be a better way of doing democracy than that. Scientists and non-scientists in a democratic setting, deliberating, discussing, proposing policy, suggesting ways of proceeding. Democratic, outside of electoral democracy, something that doesn't happen but could happen. It would be an experiment. We don't know. Who would win the argument, the scientists or the citizens? The great thing is that we maybe don't know. There will be opportunities, I think, for democratic experimentation under the stresses that this system is going to face, crisis stresses, which will not themselves suggest fixes, but will at least produce change. So my feeling about this question is that the wrong way to think about it is that we have to reform democracy in order to open it up, because I think democracies on the whole do not reform themselves. What we have to do is open it up so that it can be reformed. It's that way around. 
the opening up has to come first. And if it's opening up, then it has to be open. It can't be opened up in order to achieve a particular reform. But I think it's possible if British democracy was able to embrace alternative models of democracy from deliberative through to more direct, I mean, not necessarily more referendums, but at least possibly more direct forms of democracy, more street democracy, I mean, more protest democracy, I'm all for protest as a form of democratic engagement. That may then produce the conditions where institutional, structural, maybe even electoral reform is possible. I've often felt if you start with electoral reform, it's really hard to get there. But if you start with something else, because you don't know where you're going to end up, it's possible you would end up with electoral reform. In our next episode, which will be in the regular slot, Helen will be back and we'll be exploring what we finally do and don't know about what Brexit means. We'll also be telling you about the chance to listen to Talking Politics ad-free in 2021 and letting you know more details about the new series of History of Ideas, which will be available at the start of next month. Do please join us for all of that. Have a happy new year. We've been Talking Politics. Politics.